Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you art and creativity and social work, making magic happen in the classroom and the field. I feel like somebody should get like a service animal goat and bring it to school, like those service dogs yeah. to graduate. The service goat. I'm here for it. <laughs> Stay with us. We are very excited to have with us today one of our favorite social workers and ASU faculty, Liz Athens. Hooray! Yay! Uh, <laughs> Yay! You are our second guest in our, on our podcast, so um, I know it's been long overdue to have you with us, and we, we finally made it happen. Yeah, you're like long-time listener, first-time caller vibes. <laughs> totally, totally. I'm so excited and a little nervous. A sleepless in Phoenix. <laughs> Right? Is that what is it? Like the radio commentator? Yeah. So how how are you doing, Liz? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. And we get to go, maybe not way back, but at least a little of a ways back, because uh, most of you know that Amelda and I, and it, Liz, all uh, work on the faculty mm-hmm. at the School of Social Work and oh, get to teach the social workers of tomorrow. Woo, what a privilege. <laughs> All right, well, I get the privilege of introducing Liz, so I'm going to read her fabulous bio. Liz Athens is a licensed social worker and social work educator who enjoys creating innovative and memorable learning experiences in the classrooms for her students, believing that if students are engaged and having fun, we see better learning outcomes. Amen. Liz is a student of expressive therapies and enjoys teaching and learning about how art and other expressive mediums fit into a continuum of services for social workers at micro and mesor level interventions. As a person in long-term recovery from substances, Liz is passionate about working with people with substance use disorders and people who use drugs and feels these populations are particularly vulnerable to misunderstanding and stigma. We must do better. When she's not working, Liz enjoys making art, being outside of people she loves, and visiting her neighbor's goat, Sven. Sven. (laughs) (laughs) Sven can join us today. He should have. He's busy busy eating garbage somewhere in the corner of the field. I can relate. I can relate. Um, well, quite, quite the impressive background list. So that's this is one of the main reasons why we invited you to share with us and be with us today. Um, so to kick off our conversation, um, tell us a little bit about your teaching experience. How long have you been teaching social work? Which courses do you usually teach? Sure. Thanks. Um, so I've been teaching at the ASU School of Social Work for 10 years. Uh-huh. For the last five years, I've been teaching full-time. So I just finished my fifth year of teaching full-time as a lecturer. Uh, I have taught mainly in the MSW program, both in person and online, but I have taught some undergrad classes, and I really do enjoy those as well. I mean, it is really sort of the purest form of Uh, generalist social work and people are idealistic and they are out to change the world and they typically tend to be a little bit younger so Mm. they've got uh, development on their side for that as well so (laughs) but for the most part I teach uh, practice-based classes in the MSW program um, uh, again in person and online. So, and that's really been my teaching experience. I also have a long time practice experience working with, uh, predominantly with people um, with substance use disorders or people who use drugs, kind of everywhere that you find those folks. So, uh, everything from street level outreach to private uh, residential treatment programs and sort of everywhere in between. I've worked in jail and prison settings. I have worked 
uh, doing outpatient treatment, individual counseling, residential treatment. Uh, I've worked on college campuses with collegiate recovery programs, mm-hmm. which is something that's really exciting. Yeah, that's, that's not something that it's... I don't think I've ever heard of a program like that. So, yeah. So, ASU has um, a collegiate recovery program called Recovery Rising. And there's actually about 100 colleges in the United States that have dedicated collegiate recovery programs that provide, you know, different levels mm-hmm. of services. That's wonderful. Because you can only imagine how trepidatious a college campus is for mm-hmm. typically young adults who identify as being in recovery when they're convinced 100% that every single person is, you know, drinking alcohol and getting drunk right. and using drugs yeah. all the time. So um, the research really shows that... Uh, students who are who identify as being in recovery from substance use disorders who receive uh, some level of services from the college have a 37% grad- higher graduation rate. They complete on time, sort of all sorts of things. And that's really what you want college students to have. You want them to have a normal college experience and you want people to feel safe. So... Um, but yeah, I, I think that with regards to teaching, I really found the thing absolutely that I've been supposed to be doing this whole time. <laughs> and I was thinking about it when I was uh, coming in that there was this moment, and this is a story that I haven't really talked too much about, but there was a moment when I was a student in my MSW program and I was in the class that's the culminating experience for the MSW program. And they had just switched over from a comprehensive exam to what we call now capstone Mm -hmm. or integrated seminar. And so we were sort of being beta tested, you know, into how do how do we demonstrate how do we have students demonstrate, you know, both academic skill and advanced direct practice Mm -hmm. skill. So it's two different things. And they had us doing something. It was right during the advent of the Affordable Care Act. And so we all got assigned exactly the same assignment to do and we had to demonstrate. So it was like basically watching the same assignment with the Mm -hmm. same content on the same topic over and over again. And so I asked uh, my teacher if if our group could do something different. And so we created this kind of interactive thing where people were writing on the walls with post-its and, you know, all of this. And there was a moment when I was standing in the middle of the classroom and it was for the group project. This was like my part to facilitate. And there was, and I know that when I say this, I run the risk of people thinking that I'm talking about some sort of, you know, psychotic experience. (laughs) But there was a voice in my head that said, pay attention to this, pay attention to this moment. And I just get, I get chills just even saying that. So it was years before I started teaching, but I and I didn't realize at the time, like, that's what that thing was. Like, mm-hmm. that's what that sort of universal message was, is that you should be teaching in the classroom. And not because I had any special skill in that, but because the environment and the setting and my, uh, you know, real drive to kind of further education, my own education and mm-hmm. other people's education was really at the forefront. And it's just been a perfect... I don't know, a perfect setting and a perfect experience for me, much better than working a clinical job yeah. mm. every, you know, going and having a job every single day. Much more sustainable, 
Um, I'm, I tend to like the beginnings of things, you know, sort of the initiation mm-hmm. of things. And a semester schedule is perfect for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So new, new students, new curriculum, new classroom, new schedule every few months. So if it it's, keeps it, it keeps it um, entertaining and keeps it new. Yeah. Yeah. So it really is a, a perfect setting for me to use my skills as a social worker. Love it. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how we come to find the stuff that sets our soul on fire in the least expected ways? And I think it's a gift and curse of social work is sometimes that it's so broad that it takes people quite a long time to figure out that you may not actually need to leave the field. There is probably a part of this that is going to end up speaking to you. Mm -hmm. And kind of thinking of that, you know, when you're thinking of kind of teaching these topics and, you know, helping students find what sets their soul on fire, what kind of things help you decide on, you know, kind of curriculum or material for courses or the particular things that you bring into the classroom beyond the syllabus? So I like to update curriculum based on the Council of Social Work Education, which is our accrediting standards, mm-hmm. basic standards. So uh, we have an additional one here in the Southwest where we talk about the importance of addressing issues of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So in Arizona, 29%, I think, of our land mass is tribal land. Mm-hmm. So making sure that we're talking about working with tribal members, we're also a border state, you know, thinking about how do we address those populations. We have a lot of folks who are aging here. So really addressing, you know, all of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I like to do. I like to think about what other people who I think are super smart and interesting, what they're doing. I think that is, you know, I'm always happy when people adopt things that I'm doing in the classroom or, you know, anywhere. And so I think that it's important that we're doing that. In the last few years, though, especially in practice classes, in academia, of course, there's always this big emphasis on evidence-based practice and evidence-based interventions. And I'm a huge supporter of that. I think that when we focus too much on that, especially in practice classes, we lose out on something that I think is really magical, which mm-hmm. is practice wisdom mm-hmm. and and the relationship that we make with clients. So tempering that, you know, so really looking for good examples of media and uh, articles and writing that focus on that relationship, mm-hmm. you know, really developing that relationship and having uh, our students who become uh, future social workers really trusting their instinct and their gut because mm-hmm. I have not figured out how to teach that yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, like anything we do in the field of social work, it we we learn the theory, we learn the practices, but um, once you implement it with a specific population, a specific client, we have to tailor it to to whatever works for them and their needs and, and you know, the the how their relationship is, is evolving with the clients or the community that we're working with. So very, very important. Uh, and I'm glad that, you know, you brought that up. So I know that you like to also incorporate arts into your teaching practice. Um, and I, you know, we're friends on Facebook, so I see often all your arts projects <laughs> and, and you're, you're very, ta- very talented. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like how, how you um, find that, that balance between, you know, sticking to the curriculum of your classes and, you know, the content of the courses, but also doing it in a fun way that it's creative and artistic and engaging with the students. 
Yeah. So uh, I would say that some percentage of that is self-serving. You know, mm-hmm. it's interesting for me. Um, I also think that looking a little bit foolish is also something that we should always aspire to yes. be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some of it is that. So, um, But I do like the idea that our students who are who are in usually one class of four with me, that they're getting something that might be a little bit different and not that every teacher needs to be like me or I need to be like every other teacher. I like the idea. I mean, I just think of students as consumers of this thing that we're giving them and, you know, in the most unfortunate capitalist way. Um, But like, I'm aware that it's expensive, you know, it's expensive to go to school and we should be delivering um, content that makes sense. These are adult learners. Mm -hmm. They learn differently than kids do. Um, Adult learners typically need to know why it is. There needs to be purpose for why it is that they're learning what they're learning. You have about 18 minutes, really, of good attention with adult learners. So it things need to be broken up into, you know, different components mm-hmm. of learning. Um, if I'm talking for longer than 18 minutes, I know I've lost most of them um, in their kind of key attention span. Yeah. So uh, I just try... I try different things, you know. I'll try to do... Um, some sort of visual art thing that'll be um, loosely or directly connected to what we're talking about. I also see uh, anything that I teach and the, anything that any of us teach and the way that we teach it as something that can be adapted for working with clients. So, and I'll and I'll mention that. So I'll say, okay, so we're going to do a little, you know, welcome to class. It's the beginning of class. It's Friday afternoon at 1.30. This is a hard sell. Everything that I give you is going to be a hard sell. Um, So let's just get into our bodies and like get into the work. So I'll do some sort of self-regulation activity. And then I'll say, do this with your groups, Mm -hmm. you know, like this isn't something that only works in the classroom. Yeah. So um, I do that um, lately in my own education around expressive therapies. I've been focusing a lot more on movement and sound. So we do a lot of self-regulation activities, and then we do a lot of co-regulation activities. Mm -hmm. So how can we utilize movements in the classroom? Um, Sort of, you know, and sometimes I'll say, you know, if people are like, I don't get why we're doing this. I'm like, oh, I'm just teaching you something you're going to do with your clients. Yeah, Add it to your toolbox. Yeah. Right. And oh, by the way, it's going to work for you too. <laughs> you know? yeah. So Side effects may vary. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, I just try things. Like I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm all that strategic around it, but I do know that, you know, if I know all, and you probably do too, that glazed look, mm-hmm. you know, that happens. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to lose them in five, four, three, two. Yeah. Um, so I'll get them get up and I will, I have a button um, that when you hit it, uh, this odd German voice comes on and says, 30 second dance party. And then there's like music for 30 seconds. Right. And so I'll just say, move it, you know, and, and after 30 seconds, we get back to it. So it's not like it takes a whole lot of time for it. Um, I have used more and more since we've been back in the classroom um, after a year and a half of quarantine and teaching remotely. I think that what I found is that me and my whole, all of my students 
um, last semester, which would be our first semester back, um, it took us a long time to regulate in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Like, we were very excited. Yeah. And I would say probably, like, four or five classes, we were like, oh, my God, I haven't been this distracted in such a long time. And I'm aware of this person coughing behind their mask next to me. And my kid just, I just got a call from my you know, the nurse at my kid's school saying that there was an exposure and Mm -hmm. I got to go pick up my kids and stuff like that. So really utilizing that class time, I think that the classroom should be a cathedral, you know, Mm -hmm. like I think that it really, it should be about fellowship and it should be about excellence and it should be about trying new things and faltering and being accepted. We should be using the classroom for that. I love it. Yeah. And I I do remember um, when I, when I got my MSW, I, my first job after my MSW, I found myself using a lot of the the like icebreakers and just you know more creative activities that I experienced through my MSW courses uh, with some of my professors who were you know in a, in a similar creative space. Um, I I used those things you know not with with the clients that I was working with, so it definitely adds to to your toolbox and and your list of things that you can try with your clients, especially if you're a, a new graduate that doesn't have much experience and like, okay, what can we do for this uh, support group? Or what can I do to like break the ice with this client? I'm like, oh, I remember my professor, we did this and this is how I felt. So I'm going to apply it to my to my my work. So it is definitely useful. And I'm, I'm glad that you have that mindset that you're incorporating those things to to your teaching because it's very, very useful. It is. And it's one of those things, you know, I've had the privilege of being a hiring manager for a number of years. And I I love hiring new graduates. But when I'm doing their interviews, I'm like, not just tell me what, tell me how. How would you execute this? What exactly would you do? Take me through the steps. You know, what gets you excited? What have you tried before? And there are some students who are like, I haven't tried anything. You know, as opposed to, I love you bring up uh, being silly. I think it's one of the things that, like, I absolutely value. I'm like, there is never going to be a safer place for you to make your mistakes and have that, you know, that peer regulation, that mutual aid from people who are going through that same situation as you. And, you know, people all the time and in the classroom are either like, this is stupid, or someone's like, well, my clients (laughs) are going to say this is stupid. And my response is always, sometimes we do stupid things. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) You just roll with it. I, uh, I always have students who say, um, I'm so afraid to say the wrong thing. I'm like, oh, you will. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And and why not start here? You know, so when I have people doing role plays and things, they're like, I feel so dumb. And I'm like, this is, you know, just like you said, Jennifer, this is the safest place mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So. And I know kind of building on that, one of the courses you teach is that graduate level course on substance use disorders. Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of the practice of the arts with that specific population? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we could have had a whole, you know, diverging discussion mm-hmm. about expressive therapies, which is really, um, I consider myself a student of. Mm. For the past several years, I have been a student of some of the real leaders and lions in expressive therapies, which is very different than art therapy. Right. So there are a lot of expressive therapies. So dance um, dance and movement, music, uh, visual arts, um, bibliotherapy and poetry therapy, and, um, and drama therapy. So those are sort of the big ones. They all have their own 
um, professional credentials. They have their own um, requirements on education. They have their own theoretical framework. And they typically don't work very well with each other. So, um, you know, just sort of we see that similarly in a lot of industries. Right. So expressive therapies is is really identified as utilizing two or more expressive therapies uh, or expressive arts therapies, um, either concurrently or sequentially to address um, presenting issues, which typically um, the most research, which is limited, um, is around mitigating the symptoms of trauma. Mm -hmm. So, which, you know, I I tend to be of the school that like most of the presenting issues that we have are trauma related. Yeah. So there's that, there's that component. And when I think about um, effective treatment of substance use disorders, I mean, we, there are still vestiges of very draconian um, treatment of people with uh, substance use disorders, and it is horrifying. Um, So I've been thinking about substance use as an adaptive trauma response forever. So it makes sense that um, utilizing um, expressive therapies would make sense. You know, I think that um, when we think about counseling or therapy, uh, just recently are we starting to look at the body as part of uh, our treatment and how we treat people and that we have operated, unfortunately, out of that top down, you know, we'll stop start talking about people's thoughts and memories and perceptions and cognitions and all of that, and then move down to the emotions and then move down to sensory when expressive therapies really does the bottom up. So mm-hmm. instead of saying, uh, tell me what happened in that traumatic experience, what we're saying is let's get you in your body first. Like right. let's return you to your senses quite literally, and then move up to the emotions and then finally make sense mm-hmm. of what it is that's going on. Um, And so expressive arts really helps with that. So um, I think that we're going to see more and more use of expressive therapies, which is, you know, and I can't emphasize it enough. It's not art therapy. Um, Expressive therapies really is because because creating art can have um, a sort of body based connection to it. But a lot of people get stuck up in their head around Mm -hmm. it, you know, and and there's a fair amount of comparison that happens, you know, Um, you know, a question that often gets asked is, how am I, you know, I'm not an artist, so this won't work. Yeah. And, you know, I have some opinions about that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and actually, uh, that was one of the questions that, so we asked our listeners on our on our Instagram, um, any questions they might have, you know, so, uh, around uh, expressive therapy and, and, and all that. And some people said, like, well, I'm not artistic myself. Like, where can I start? Um, are there any, like, certifications or trainings that you think that will be a good place for someone who is, like, fairly new to the practice um, that they can check out? So, yeah. So, um, and, you know, I want to I wanna be clear that, like, I'm not... Um, saying that art therapy or, you know, because there's art therapy is a specific modality that people can get licensed and certified Mm -hmm. in. There's an international um, certification for art therapists. Um, But people don't last very long in conversation with me when they say I'm not an artist. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think that it's pretty easy for us to 
compare ourselves to people who um, also have innate talent and decades of practice um, to, you know, the things that we don't do um, or that we feel like we don't do very well. So the other thing that's different with expressive therapies is that it's about the process and not the product. Mm -hmm. So it really isn't necessarily about what you end up with. It's about being in the moment and utilizing the experience. So whether you're using movement or dance or uh, making music, listening to music, or making art, um, or writing, or, you know, any of those things. It's really about what was the process like, and not necessarily what the product was like. Um, sometimes I'll tell my students when we're doing stuff, I'm like, you're making art to throw away. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. the goal is you're going to take this and toss it in the trash on your way out. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about what was that like, and how might you be able to use this? with yourself, with your kids, with clients, yeah. and, like and maybe even I'm, I'm just, you know, thinking through my like my own experience, like, even if you're creating something that is related to a traumatic event, you might not want to keep it, you might you just want to throw it away It's like, this is Absolutely. not something that you want, I want to like put up on my wall or anything is it just something to make and throw away and then in that throwing it away, it's part of the, the healing process as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So in practice, that's a real ethical issue that needs to be addressed because um, especially if it's visual art that mm -hmm. now lives, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was something that didn't exist and now it does exist. Um, where does that art live? Does it live at home? Does it live? Is it part of the documentation? Um, how long do you have to hold on to that as part of documentation? If you have people who are making a lot of art and you've been seeing people for a long time, that's a lot of art. As a clinician, that's a lot of art to hold on to. So I've actually been thinking about that and talking to my friends who are um, art therapists and expressive arts therapists. And I, I actually like the idea of documentation being something that is owned by, like that there is a, a process where the client owns some of the documentation. And I think that with visual arts, there's an interesting way to do that. Like you're either taking photographs mm -hmm. or taking pieces of art mm -hmm. and having people reflect on that. But yeah, so um, if you're using uh, visual arts or anything else that's recorded somehow, um, figuring out how you're going to dispose of that and what the process of that disposal is, is maybe even a bigger part of the therapy yeah. than creating it in the first place. And it's funny too, um, as we talk about the process of doing art, you know, and I've brought it up with, you know, students or clients, a lot of people have like really specific art trauma. Like, Absolutely. oh, my, my kindergarten teacher shamed me or like, mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at this in school and I got bad grades in art class and like, things that we can do to take them out of that scenario. Like one of the things I was told is like you use like ridiculously sized paper, either really big or really small. You know, if they mm -hmm. were used to like getting in trouble around those eight and a half by 11 sheets, then we don't bring those into the classroom um, or what other ways we can kind of move around that or address it directly. Like, you know, we're going to do something that might bring you back to a space where you were really shamed about and we're, probably going to end up working through that whether you you know <laughs> that was the goal of today or not it's going to come up for you so here we go right I mean and that's you know when we're with clients or you know and I've seen this with students too who are absolutely not my clients you know they're they show up with their body and their experience you know so they're going to have it and I have certainly had some students say usually afterwards they were like that brought up a lot of stuff for me I'm mm -hmm. like yeah I bet 
like good. <laughs> it's exactly what was supposed to happen. <laughs> the purpose of it, yeah. You know, and and I always start with, you know, sort of some informed consent around it, right. saying. It may look like what we're doing is just drawing big figure eights on the wall, you know, like it may, we may just be doing this sort of bilateral stuff and your body will let you know what that experience, you know, what is being shaken up a little bit. And sometimes people are really surprised when that happens. Yeah. You know, it's funny as I've uh, become an EMDR practitioner over the last year and all the ways that, you know, EMDR is a very particular modality that you absolutely should be trained in if you're going to execute it in its purest form, but ways of creating that same bodily response that can still be responsibly delivered by people who are not trained in EMDR, you know, all that bilateral stimulation comes up in lots of different ways, including art. So there's really neat ways to do it without getting a $2,500 EMDR training. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So one other thing is that when people are like, I'm nervous about art, it's like, take a community art class, like mm -hmm. take a studio class, you know, and, and just practice making stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes that helps build a little confidence, which mm -hmm. then builds a little competence, you know. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's one of the pieces. The thing I love about our students as social workers taking risks is that they're asking their clients to take risks mm -hmm. all the time. And so it's an element of co-regulation, you know, it's sort of saying, I, you've got skin in the game, and I've got skin in the game, and I'm a little nervous. And I may or may not share that with you. You know, sometimes all you got to say is, I'm just going to try, I'm going to try something. Let's see whether this works. Yeah. That takes the edge off. Um, but that our students when they're in their field placement, and then also when they're working in the field, we should expect that they should be a little bit uncomfortable. It's it's the cost of doing business in that relationship, I think. We should expect that, um, that clinicians should be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable because we're asking our clients to do that all the time. I think that's one of the things that I... And especially when we're teaching like over Zoom and stuff, try and really demonstrate to students is that I'm going to do it with you. And I ask them afterwards, like, how did it feel to be able to look up and know that I was drawing right along with you versus yeah. you being like observed and you were, you know, my fish in the fish tank and I'm yes. tapping on the glass. Like <laughs> you got to when I worked with a bunch of play therapists and I'd walk by the little windows, I'd be like, get on the floor, get on the floor. Like if you have little kids in there, <laughs> get on the floor. It's the same thing when you're doing art with people do it with them. Like it feels so much better in that co-regulation and your mirror neurons, right? Like yeah. there's science, there's comfort, there's all that stuff. And there's your own joy of getting to play right yeah. in that moment. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think it also, um, the power dynamics, mm -hmm. it, it shifts because it, now you're my equal. Like we're doing this together yeah. instead of like, you are telling me what to do and you're observing me. Expert. And yeah, you are the expert and I'm the one with the problem and you're observing what I'm doing and analyzing what I'm doing. It just completely shifts the, 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 the power dynamics in the, in the relationship with the client. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we, like I mentioned, we, we asked um, a lot of our listeners or, you know, our followers on Instagram, uh, what questions they have regarding art and social work practice. Um, and some of the popular ones were, like I mentioned, you know, where can people start if they're not artistic? Um, and also, like, what is a bu budget friendly way to implement art uh, or expressive therapies into their practice? So, yeah. So um, you always first 
and foremost want to start with equity. So I any any visual art that I suggest um, is very cheap. You know, it's very um, inexpensive using the stuff that most people could probably find in a junk drawer. You know, mm-hmm. so crayons. Um, Recycled paper, um, n- old newspapers, I think, are really helpful and interesting if you're going to be drawing on them. But I also feel very strongly for clinicians to require that their employers um, pay for stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I th- we do not want to have to go down the long legacy of primary educators who, when they want to do fun things in the classroom, that they're asked to, to the bucket, yeah. that they have to pay for it. Yeah. You know, so when um, if your employer is invested in you as an employee, they should invest in you as an employee, you know, and they really should. um, And and I just know how line item budgets work. You know, there's always money um, when a budget is put together that's set aside for stuff like that. Yeah, supplies. Yeah. So uh, don't get into the process. I have to say that I was guilty of it. Don't get into the process of just like buying the stuff. Um, so yeah, so you always want to think about if am I using materials that uh, in a practice or you know for me in the classroom that aren't going to be accessible to uh, my clients or my students. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't use them, but it's just a consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something special about the idea of being like, oh, I get to go to, you know, see Miss Jennifer in uh, her office because she has the good paints, you know, like <laughs> that's, you the know. Good, the good markers. That right. When we were little. The good markers and the Sharpies <laughs> yeah. and, you know, all of that. So, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so, um, but then there's a lot of other things, you know, music is relatively free in most places. Movement is definitely free. You always want to think about people's, you know, different abilities with regards to movement. And you really, really want to think about cultural appropriation versus Mm -hmm. appreciation and then also cultural exchange, you know, so how can there be some give and take um, between cultures? So you really want to be thoughtful about that. It doesn't mean that you can't use things. It just means you have to um, be kind of deliberate Mm -hmm. and strategic around that and thoughtful and reverent and... um, And respectful too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's one of those things where sometimes, you know, people might even be more willing to engage. Like we know that culturally, you know, a lot of white folks feel comfortable divulging and being very vulnerable and that's kind of the expectation of like the therapeutic or the classroom setting is you have that power Mm -hmm. dynamic um and expressive therapies give people sometimes that space but sometimes people are still really reluctant which I know we've talked a little bit about today already but what are some of your favorite things to kind of say or ways that you kind of set the table around that informed consent so that people feel comfortable diving it as much as they can. Yeah. Well, the first thing is I always allow people to opt out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm like, if this doesn't feel right, um, then you don't have to do it. I'm like, but if it feels like you're a little nervous about it, like dig in, you know, like we can get past like some nervousness or some like weird um, intimidation that we might have about something. But so I always talk like, so if we're doing some sort of percussion, for example, mm-hmm. like I'll talk about like, what that is, you know, and and that all cultures have utilized percussion. Um, 
or, you know, I'm very conscious around yoga, you know, like this term that has now become ubiquitous almost. Mm-hmm. And, and to really say that, you know, if you're going to call it yoga, you better be a yogi, you know, and mm-hmm. if you are, um, if you're doing a yoga practice, that means that you better be talking about the other eight, the other seven yeah. stages of yoga, yeah. you know, um, I'm like, is it, is it stretching and movement? call it stretching and movement, you know, it's okay, you know, you can still do these things, but you just want to be really thoughtful around how you're doing that. But opting out, um, there is usually a fair amount of group think that happens. So if everyone's saying, you know, if people are saying, I'm not going to do that, you know, I feel weird about that, but then everyone else is, then people usually end up doing it for better or worse. I don't know if that, you know, a case could be made that both of those things are, you know, kind of valid but so I like to talk about that I talk about and I talk about all that stuff beforehand so um sometimes I'll be very um specific about the purpose of things beforehand and sometimes I don't like that's another Mm -hmm. um that's another sort of strategy that I'm like noodling around with is sometimes I'll say okay so we're gonna do this and this is the reason and this is what'll happen and all that and sometimes I'll say grab two crayons how does that feel you know (laughs) grab a crayon in the left and right hand draw with both of them at the same time and what comes up and then we'll talk about sort of the um, kind of purpose and meaning afterwards I don't know the jury's still out about which one I mean and I think that both of them are both of them are interesting you know both of them have some interesting um, kind of thoughts behind the what's better or what's not better. Mm-hmm. So as we start wrapping up our time together and our conversations, um, are there any words of advice that you have for current social workers? I know a good amount of our listeners are either students or newly graduates, you know, young social workers who are still finding their way of, you know, what, what what's their place in the field? You know what what feels right for them. Um, any words of advice is, uh, from your experience and your teaching experience as well? Um, I guess I would say take risks. Um, you know, take those calculated risks and try things um, with great supervision. Um, I think the other thing is demand great supervision. Amen. <laughs> uh. Demand great supervision, um, especially. Well, actually, at the bachelor's level and the master's level, especially now. Um, you are all so employable. You are five minutes away from being, you know, a multiple like employment options. Uh, you do not have to settle for a job that isn't going to pay you enough or isn't going to sort of meet the criteria. Uh, every social worker I know, me included, was terrified. And I spent a lot of time trying to convince people in job interviews that I was the right person and now I look back on it and I'm like I should have been interviewing them yes Uh yes I absolutely should have been interviewing them I wouldn't have landed at the first few jobs that I had Mm -hmm. if I wasn't um if I wasn't so nervous about it you know and it was you know I had rent to pay and I had you know things to do like I understand sort of the motivation behind it but now I look back on it and I was like, oh my gosh, that was, that was such an amateur move to end up. And it was a waste of time for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think another thing that is really helpful is for people to really reflect on not just who they are, but how they are. Mm-hmm. Um, is an hour commute going to be a big deal for you? Mm-hmm. Don't take that job, yep. even if it's a great job, because the job might be great, but that commute is going to 
just be the end of you. Yeah, eventually make it unbearable, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is is having your supervisor or, you know, whoever's in charge of you um, are being around all the time, is that important to you? Then don't take a job where a supervisor is working across five different agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, really take some time to get to know um, who you are as a worker and not necessarily as a social worker, because I think people will end up where they need to be, but... You know, I I have a job. I had a job early on where I was working at a women's prison, and if it wasn't an hour and ten minutes away, I would probably still be there. Mm-hmm. But that's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting for yeah. me. Yeah. So other people didn't have an issue with it, but like I had a real. Um, no matter how good the job was, it still was an hour and ten minute commute. Yeah, just move the prison. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anything? Anything else you have? Jennifer, I know we can we can talk for hours with Liz and about, you know, going to like tangents of all the wonderful things that we we mentioned today. Um, but and I know Liz is going to share some resources with us uh, that we'll be listing mm-hmm. on the podcast episode page on our website. Are there any that kind of need some explanation or that you'd like to tell us a little bit uh, now so people are really excited? Sure, yeah. So for folks who are, so for social workers who are thinking about teaching and we desperately need you, Mm -hmm. um, students love uh, social workers who are working in the field Mm -hmm. and then come in and share. Um, I can't recommend enough uh, material from the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. Um, They have um, pretty proprietary trainings, but you can find a lot of it on YouTube as well. So it's really the best evidence-based interventions for teaching, which is wonderful. Um, The Trauma-Sensitive Classroom by Patricia Jennings, which is really wonderful, I think that it's coming out in a second edition soon. It's but a book? It's a book, yes, okay. sorry. Um, and uh, another one which I just got finished reading, um, which is called Minding Bodies, How Physical Space, Sensation, and Movement Affect Learning by Susan Rock. Um, I think that those are really great. And then for expressive therapies, the Expressive Therapies Summit, which is um, a huge... It's like the mothership of expressive <laughs> therapies. They have two conferences a year, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Um, and it's every single type of expressive therapy. Um, people come from all over the world. That's wonderful. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I want to check it out. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> we should go. Yes. I think you mentioned that it's in every February, right? Or... Oh, no. So that's a different one, which okay. I think is um, good. So there's another conference that's a new conference for me. I have a friend of mine who's presenting, and that's how I learned about it. It's held every February, and it's called the Creative Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference um, by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Oh, wow. And so I think that that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. And they hold that every February. All right. Radical. Yeah. So it's something to look forward to. Yeah. Well, as always, um, all of the resources and links and books and everything that we talk about in the episodes, it's going to be listed on our the website description of the episode. Um, and then also we'll we'll share it on on Instagram on the links for uh, for the episodes as well. So thank you so much, Liz, for yeah. being here with us. Has thank you. A fan- yeah, a fantastic conversation. I know I have a lot of questions. Uh, and, you know, follow up and, and books that I want to read now and, you know, <laughs> go more into the expressive um, therapy side. And as always, we thank our listeners for joining us and we'll see you next time.